and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. We start off today with some really important and really positive news to do with the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act. Ben, what, what's that all about? This is a fantastic piece of news. The uh, Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act, now the Act has cleared Parliament. Um, it is a piece of legislation the Free Speech Union and many academics have been campaigning for for a very long time. Uh, it's now awaiting royal assent. It's cleared its passage through the Commons, through the Lords. Um, and what it does is finally give students and academics and visiting speakers at universities proper recourse if their free speech rights are cancelled. So if you're going to give a talk at a university and you're no platform, or if you're in a situation like one of the, the hundreds that the Free Speech Union has dealt with in higher education, there will now be a uh, legal recourse available to help you to defend your free speech rights in higher education and to defend free speech in university. So to take a step back, under the Education Act that was passed in 1986, it was the case that universities had to take such steps as are reasonably practicable to ensure that freedom of speech within the law is secured for members, students and employees, as well as visiting speakers. The trouble is that language is quite weak. Um, it's something that the Free Speech Union has invoked many times when we're writing letters or corresponding with universities trying to get them to uh, protect an event that is facing uh, calls for its cancellation or something like that. But it's quite weak language. Now, what the new piece of legislation, Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act, does is introduce basically uh, two new things. So first of all, there will be a director of freedom of speech and academic freedom at something called the Office for Students. And this is somebody to whom you can complain if your free speech rights have been breached. And the really fantastic news is that the first free speech SAR, as the media have insisted on calling this person, this director of the <laughs> Office for Students, uh, is going to be Dr. Arif Ahmed, uh, Professor of Philosophy at Cambridge, who I think many listeners, many people may well have heard of. He's been very prominent in uh, the mm. free speech wars at Cambridge uh, and, and in defending freedom of speech across the university sector more widely. So that is, that's the first thing that the Act does that's really important. So that's a fantastic piece of news on its own. Um, and the second is this enforcement, enforcement mechanism of a, a statutory tort whereby essentially you'll be able to sue a university in a county court if your free speech rights are breached. So those two things are real uh, shields for freedom of speech, for academic freedom at university, that I think, Tom, you and I and our listeners will know um, have been sorely needed over the last five or six years, particularly when there's just been this onslaught of uh, cancel culture and the, the, this chilling of academic freedom and free speech. So it's fantastic news. And as, yeah, very much so, just to pick up on your point there about uh, the number of cases we've had, you know, 20% of our cases have, have come from universities. Uh, we've dealt with 2,000 plus, as, we, as we've said multiple times, but 20% of those have come from universities. And the reason universities are so key to this is then we've seen the universities start to affect the court, you know, the people come out of universities, they go into the corporate world, and all the ideas and the philosophies, the woke philosophy that they picked up in university gets taken into the workplace. And, and so we start to see that happening as well. And where where management is weak, where the current manage, managers who've been there for 20 years is weak, um, they overhaul all of their you know, equality policies in line with what the, 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 the recently graduated people from these universities um, are saying. So, so it, it really is important. And one of the things that I was thinking about, we often in the midst of all of the the, the cases and, and, and the change that's happening um, around equality, diversity, inclusion, and no platforming, and all the bad free speech things that have been happening, this debate has taken place. Do we need entirely new institutions because it's, it, that it's gone too far? Or can we reform the, univer the, the universities and the institutions that we already have? And I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, Ben, but I think this piece of legislation could well mean in that debate tilt it quite considerably towards there's an opportunity now to reform or at least stem the tide on what we've seen happen in the, in the, in the existing uh, tertiary education sector. 
I think more competition in the sector can only be a good thing. So I think there's a very strong case for new institutions, but obviously that's a huge, huge undertaking. Um, so I, I think it would be a mistake to give up on the institutions we we have now entirely, I, particularly because we see, um, although if you're if you're just looking at the news and and you have stories like um, Kathleen Stock at Oxford and and there's an incident like that every week as we know very well, so it's easy to see that and just give up on the whole sector, but. There are people in each of these institutions, both academics and students, who are very, very effective now in pushing back against cancel culture in trying to defend academic freedom and freedom of speech. So I think it would be a, a, a grave mistake to abandon those holdouts. Um, uh, so I, I think new institutions, fine, I think there's a case for that. But let's not give up on uh universities that we already have particularly with this new piece of legislation um now coming into effect i think that that will make a, a huge change to, to those holdouts to people who are trying to preserve the the small l classical liberal university experience and, and the mission of those institutions well i i think that's uh, uh right you know Cambridge has existed since well, Oxford's existed longer than Cambridge, dare I say it. Mm. But Cambridge has existed for you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, and to lose them would be you know, in the midst of a, a, cu- a, cu- a cancel culture and a cultural change of just the last thirty years would be very um, a huge loss to, to everything that we that we have. And I wonder whether this will now this now that it's going to hit statute books, whether it might become as as important as the Equality Act. And Ben, I don't know what you you think, but you know our next topic kind of might be an interesting test case for this new bill as it as it hits the statute bill statute books. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think going back to something you just said a moment ago about the uh, the antiquity, the age of of uh, Oxford and Cambridge and many of our institutions, um, the, the the purpose of a university has not always been clear in the way that I just defined it as providing a classical liberal education. It's been it's been contested, it's been redefined. Um, and one of the primary purposes of universities throughout most of their history was providing, uh, essentially functioning as seminaries, providing religious education. And in a sense, they, I think for a time in the last decade, they've really gone back to that role. They've been providing a, um, a, a neo-religious education for people that who have then carried that out as you've just described into their workplace into private business or the civil service or the charitable sector or schools or hospitals or whatever um and so i I think as part of that uh, of that contest about what the purpose of universities is this piece of legislation is a very clear statement that uh, no universities are not for providing that kind of uh, doctrinal education they are for providing. There's one big difference, I would say, Ben, on that. One big difference that occurs to me is that the the historical carrying on of the religious uh, truths and the religious texts and the religious understandings, that was very much a top-down thing, yep. whereas it feels to me that the, the, the new religion is very much a bottom-up thing. Uh, that may or may not be quite right as a distinction, um, but it also means that the characterization of it is, and the feel of it is very different because we're seeing it. We're seeing this change come from the younger, less experienced, uh, people and, and putting the older, more experienced people in, in positions, supposedly in positions of authority feel at risk. Um, which isn't something that didn't exist when, uh, when, when we're talking about more of a religious background. Clearly, you know, the church was at war with the, with the secular authorities in all sorts of ways at different times. But I feel that the, the, the secular authorities, the state always held the upper hand a lot of the time on some of that. So I think, I think that's something I draw out from that analogy. It's a very powerful analogy you, you, you make there, Ben, I think. I think that's also a very good reason why uh, if you're not in a university, you don't have a connection to university, you don't have children or grandchildren at university. That's the reason you should care about this, because it's no longer the case where, you know, perhaps 15 years ago or 20 years ago, um, you could laugh at what was going on in a sociology department at a middling university and it wouldn't bother you um, because you you would know full well that any uh, graduate of such an institution would make it out into the real world and would quickly have to change their assumptions and their thinking to fit in with the culture of their workplace. But instead, the opposite is happening, as you've just described. There's this, this sort of bottom-up change where uh, managers are pandering to 
the most intolerant segments of young people graduating from universities. And I don't want to homogenize all young people because we see so many students and recent graduates who are pushing back against this, as I've said. But nonetheless, the pressure um, on, on managers, on uh, woke corporations and civil servants and so on, is to kind of fit in with this social justice ideology that the young are bringing with them. So I think that's why you should care about this piece of legislation, because it uh, gone are the days where we could just sort of laugh at what's going on in university uh, English or sociology departments and think, well, it doesn't bother me, you know, no, no skin off my nose. Mm. Students have always thought daft things and they'll grow out of it. But I think emphatically, we're in a very different world, a very different situation now. So I think this is why this act is so important for everybody, not just for academics or students. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, we've said multiple times, as I said, the Equality Act has been a huge device for us to use uh, to protect particularly gender-critical views in the current environment. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to actually seeing this work in practice uh, and suspect it will become a, a, a second device in our armory in the fight back for freedom of expression. So it's a huge piece of news and it's been going rolling on for a long, long time. But um, to also to have Arif as the first um, czar, as you, as you said, is is great news. He's as, as I think you, you described it, Ben, as he has impeccable free speech credentials so that is a, a double win as well um so yeah but we shall see as i said maybe maybe our first test case is coming up do you want to talk about kathleen stock yeah so this is as i've just mentioned a moment ago so i think probably as many people will have seen now she'd been invited to give a talk at the oxford union and there's been this huge um back and forth battle over the last week or two with up to a thousand protesters reportedly planning to attend a picket uh, against her talk, and this is all—if you've not—if you're not familiar with, with, with her, she became something of a um, of a household name entirely unexpectedly. I think she has said in response to her um, views about the trans debate and about protecting women's rights and women's spaces. Uh, so she was forced out of her university at Sussex. Uh, this was all reported at the time, and this is the headlines for for months and months and months. Um, and all she, all she's doing at, at Oxford is coming to give a talk, um, and yet there's this huge backlash once again. And uh, but it's not just it's not just in the one direction against it because hearteningly there has been a open letter signed by some very eminent academics at Oxford uh, across the university uh, who have defended her right to come and speak so again there is this there is this pushback and going back to what we were saying a moment ago I don't think it would be wise to give up on these institutions because there are people who I think are growing in, in courage who want to push back and defend freedom of speech so yes this could be a very interesting test case of the new legislation hopefully it won't be hopefully it will just be the case that she arrives gives a talk people can make their views known peacefully outside they don't have a right to disrupt the running of an event that's the crucial difference and we're talking with our our colleague tim about the the the, the policing of protest and where the boundary is and what's acceptable and what isn't um so i think it's pretty clear in this case well, i think the oxford union has um basically now being told by the oxford university students union they've they, they've cut they've cut off the oxford union um and said uh, you, you know we're no longer going to be associated with them my, my understanding is that that means they'll still be able to be part of the freshers fair so so the oxford union picks up a lot of people at the freshers fair and that's how they find out about it when they arrive at oxford but, you know, one of the things that's so depressing about this is that the Oxford Union um, has been a place, as I think we may have said before, where so many controversial figures have arrived in the past. O.J. Simpson, I think, had his only UK, after the trial, his only UK speak uh, opportunity to speak at the Oxford Union. There was, I mean, it did, it did obviously, all of this did kick up a fuss at the time. Uh, David Irving and, and Nick Griffin spoke, um, I think, about 2010. And there were protests, but interestingly at the time, that they, the authorities wanted, were much more prone to, to making sure they put on a, an environment where the, the, the event could take place. And it did take place. And, and of course, we, you know, we need protesters on, on all sides, but the events where people speak need to take place. So the Oxford Union has this, this p 
pedigree of being a place of freedom of expression, pedigree of being a place for free debate and open debate. Um, and then, as you say, Professor Kathleen Stock, who is just mild-mannered, as mild-mannered as they come, thoughtful, um, well-accredited, uh, clearly an experienced academic, hasn't courted controversy. I suspect you wouldn't put her in the same bucket as Nick Griffin. And yet... Nowhere near. Nowhere near. Nowhere near. Not in, not no, in, totally, not in a million light years. Not on the same planet. Yeah. I, I, and and yet this is this is now where we are, that someone like that, someone like Professor Kathleen Stock, is going to have up to a 1,000 protesters, which is, as you say, you know, really, really very... Um, worrying so so we'll see we'll see but uh, you know there, there are so many positive things here to have 40 people and they're publicly putting their name to it these oxford academics are yeah. publicly saying we are we, we we cannot have the students shutting this down what do you think what do you think ben if you were a student at oxford would you go along to the event oh absolutely you, you absolutely would how could you miss the opportunity there was a uh, fantastic event held by the Oxford Union in uh, 1978, I think it was, and I watched, you can see the recording on YouTube, where uh, former President Richard Nixon came to speak. And there is an incredibly loud protest outside. You can still hear what Nixon is saying, but but he's speaking over an incredibly raucous demonstration that's going on outside. But to think of the opportunity those students had, 18, 19, 20 years old, to be in that room... And the vast majority of them, if they were at all representative, must have hated his guts. But they had the chance to go to ask questions, to take the piss out of him, to uh, interrogate him, and he had the chance to respond to that. Now, wouldn't you, if you had to pick, would you rather be in that room asking a very sharp, pointed, hostile question of Richard Nixon, or just one of the crowd of hundreds of people outside chanting and waving a placard around which one is the better opportunity it's obvious isn't it that, that you want to be in the room really? whatever your view of richard nixon you want to be in the room i i agree with that ben uh, there's fear there though there is fear your copybook might get blotted your friends might see you were there your your mates at the lectures may may uh, give you the cold shoulder and you may think, well, there are unknown, unforeseen consequences here because I was at the Kathleen Stock event. And I, I, I suspect that was also true back, back in Richard Nixon's day, but, but not, not in quite the same way, I think, where actually, you know, there is this, there is this threat in the air that you will be marked down or, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, effectively a form of cancelled because of because of it today. Well, it's this tainting by association. I don't think anybody, and maybe I'm wrong, I wasn't around in 1978, but I'd be very surprised if somebody would have caught somebody leaving that talk with Richard Nixon and taken the view that by being present in that room, they had in some way endorsed him or agreed with him or approved of him. When actually, it seems to me, if you bother to turn up to go and you've got the the nerve and the strength of character to go and ask a really hostile question of a former president of the United States. Um, you know, the, the idea that by being there, you're somehow automatically endorsing a speaker is yeah. absolutely absurd. But this climate of fear is something that, um, that, that we know about firsthand. And that if you're at university now, or you've got children at university, I'm afraid you'll probably recognize. Um, and there's an article in the Telegraph on Sunday evening, written by an anonymous member of the Oxford Feminist Union, uh, describing exactly, um, exactly this climate and people saying, you know, why are you going to Kathleen Stock's event? And, uh, and this, this sort of the constant low grade social pressure, um, to skirt certain topics or to um, to suppress some of your views or just to tone down what you think slightly. Um, and I think living like that, we don't have to live like that. That's when we work for the Free Speech Union. But, yeah. but having just left the university um, sector, having worked at Oxford before coming to the Free Speech Union, I, I recognise entirely what this, this anonymous writer is saying. Um, and it's, it, you know, it makes people pretty miserable if you're if you're constantly having to suppress what you what you really think about things and you feel that you can't speak openly in case 
um, you know, and, and this constant process of of um, of trying to, to 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 guess or work out what people might think based on very subtle clues to decide if they're a safe person to speak to. And it's so unpredictable. Yeah, as you say, you, yeah. you, you're having to read people. There are occasions, so many occasions, where things have hit the newspapers, people have been attacked in the newspapers, and the first time you read what they've said, you're struggling to see what the problem is. And then some clever person comes along on the, on, on the side of whichever debate it is, whether it's a religious debate, whether it's a debate about gender-critical feminism, whatever it may be, and spins what they've said in such a way, you then go, oh, oh, I suppose you could read it that way. I mean, it didn't occur to me to read it that way. However, all right. And suddenly, and suddenly you've completely changed the meaning. But there was no way a priori that you could have known, oh, that was going to be racist or that was going to be, you know, sexist or homophobic or transphobic or whatever it is. As you say, it's clues and tiny signals and tiny little bits of the wording that make all the difference. The example you mentioned before, you know, the difference between colored people and people of color. That's, that, that's, that's now a huge, big difference, big deal. And it's, it's, you know, one of multiple instances where that sort of thing could happen. Um, and, and accompanied with that, I loved a phrase you used, uh, earlier on, Ben, um, uh, pocket veto. I really love that phrase, this idea of the different kinds of ways. We've got the heckler's veto, which will be the thousand protesters trying to stop the event from happening. Then you've got other kinds of pocket veto. People have been block booking in other places, haven't they? So if an yeah. event's on, they block book with phantom people so that no one can go. Yeah. Um, and, and the other one is for, oh, security. We need to pay for security. And that vetoes the event because that's a financial. So there's financial, there's logistical by, by, by blocking out the, uh, the seats. And then there's the heckler's veto, the, the intimidation, all these different kind of ways of vetoing things from going ahead. I was speaking to, um, my, successes my my long distance successes at the debating society at exeter university of which i used to be president many many years ago um, and they were describing this process of trying to book what used to be pretty straightforward events um uh, and the obstruction and delay that you get either from the uh, student union or from the university or from both and the barriers that are put in your way the low level uh, petty fogging bureaucracy um and it, it, it the the net result of this is to make the organization of these events burdensome difficult and most importantly for unattractive and you're sort of browbeaten mm. into wanting to to give up on organizing an event of this nature um and so that got me thinking about ways in which the free speech union can help students in that situation um and the the result of 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 these discussions that we've been we've been having um is the mctaggart program that we spoke about um a few weeks ago i think and this essentially is a grant giving program that the free speech union administers and we are giving grants to new or existing student societies as well as to academics or individual students uh, who want to apply for a, a project or, or an event or something that is in some way promoting freedom of speech uh, and freedom of expression. We're open to all sorts of, of different types of uh, activity. We don't want to be very prescriptive. Um, and while the Higher Education Act is is strengthening the legal framework for free speech, we also need to rebuild a culture of free speech. So the McTaggart programme is part of that effort, where we can help individual students or groups of students um, with, with these projects. And so there have been two events uh, in the last month that we have supported with emergency funding. Uh, the first of all was organised at the University of Bristol by a feminist group called Women Talk Back. They had exactly the type of obstruction and stalling from the university authorities that we've just described, and they wanted to have an event with uh, four very eminent lawyers um, and the university. And, and that was the day, wasn't it, Ben? That was the day that we launched the McTaggart programme, almost, almost as soon yeah. as... We launched it. This happened. Sorry, yeah. I interrupted you there. No, but no, it was that, astonishing. That's right. That's right. Um, and this was because of the, uh, the so the university basically seemed to be motivated by concern about the uh, views of those lawyers about uh, the trans debate, i.e., that they held gender critical views. 
um, and about the prospect of, of protests. Um, so we gave funding for security costs so that the event could go ahead. And then on the other side of the political spectrum, there was an event organised at uh, St John's College at the University of Cambridge by Charlie Bentley Astor, a Cambridge student. Um, and this was to be a film screening uh, of a film about declining birth rates uh, in which uh, the role of feminism and modern dating apps and dating culture uh, was to be discussed. Um, and this attracted so much controversy and hostility uh, that the college basically said that the event can't go ahead this term because the protests would be so disruptive to people taking exams and put the organiser in a position where she was effectively being held responsible for policing the protests against her own event. So completely ludicrous position to put a student in. But nonetheless, the um, the organiser, Charlie Bentley-Aster, had uh, arranged a very short notice um, question and answer session with the director of this film, who was coming over from Japan to talk to students about it. Um, and the screening is being rearranged for later this month as well. And the Free Speech Union has offered to pay the, uh, the any venue or security costs that might be required to ensure it can go ahead. So there are just these little... And the curious thing about that film... Yeah. Sorry, the, the curious thing about that film is that, um, as I say, there's, there's nothing, again, going back to the sort of signals as to what causes a, uh, a cancellation, there's nothing about that film that was particularly controversial other than that the director had once appeared on a, on a Jordan Peterson podcast from, from what I understand it. So again, this, the, 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 anyone listening who thinks, oh, I can't be cancelled or, or, or surely that can't be, this the incredible, there's a, the remote links that get made and then trigger this kind of reaction. Um, but I, I mean, Ben, you were going to say that, of course, that's the second example we've had. Um, um, but carry on and explain sort of how the McTaggart program can help in, in all of these cases. Well, in, in both of these situations, um, you know, one, one event broadly of the left, one event broadly of the right, uh, the protest, the, the, the protesters go through this, um, you know, six degrees of separation, tainting by association process uh, to find something about which they can be uh, offended. Now, the FSU and the McTaggart programme have stepped in and we, we can make sure that these events go ahead and we're very happy to do it. Um, one other thing to mention about the Freedom of Speech Act is that it will make it much more difficult for universities to pass on security costs onto the organisers of events. It will only be in exceptional circumstances that that can happen. Um, so that's another tactic that um, that can be used to, to pocket veto events to frustrate organisers. Um, and that's a tactic that hopefully will not be um, used as widely and will not be successful very often. Um, so, as you said, Tom, you know, in, in just a few short weeks, immediately after launching this programme, there's been this huge demand for it. Uh, so you can find the details this on our website if you're interested in making an application or if you know somebody um, at university uh, who would be interested in applying, let them know. Mm. It feels to me that the theme of, of these these cases as we link them together the mctaggart program the kathleen stock the higher education bill the thing that's cropped up is this seven degrees of separation eight degrees of separation nine degrees yeah. of separation between between the thing that's happening and the offense that gets taken on the one hand and the second is the incredible i'd love i'd love some of these people to be the sort of if they'd been working for me on my old team I'd love them to be the sort of innovators. Wow, the innovative way in which they find to shut things down or to make things impossible, whether it's, fine, as I said, financial, whether it's logistical, or, or whether it's something else that we haven't thought of. And you combine those two things. I'm going to take offence even though I can't see how I could possibly take offence. You know, almost like an April Fool's. And then on the second hand, I'm going to find these incredibly innovative ways to to shut shut you down and make this not happen. And you marry those two things together. And, you know, the two big things, as you say, the McTaggart program to help with the sort of micro versions of this and then a real good piece of statute, um, hopefully start to attack both those sides of, of what we're seeing in these in these in these news items. We were interviewing Matt Johnson, who'd written this 
very excellent book about Christopher Hitchens last time. And that reminded me of a, of a story, dare I say, a parable that Christopher Hitchens had told when he was talking about the uh, Danish cartoon riots back in the 2000s. I can't remember the exact year now. Um, <clears throat> and he describes a, uh, a delegation of very respectable society women arriving on the door of Dr. Johnson, who had just finished and published his dictionary. And they had arrived to congratulate him for not including any lewd words in his work. And he congratulated them for their perseverance in looking them all up. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> in, <laughs> classic, classic Hitchens. It, it is a struggle, isn't it? It's a struggle. Am, am, I, am I offended by that word? I don't know what it means. Yeah. No, I need to check. <laughs> and so classic Hitchens style, absolutely skewering people who are... Uh, you know, desperate to peer into their neighbours' bathrooms, I think was was the phrase he used, uh, to find something objectionable or offensive going on so that they can complain about it. Um, and the, the the quicker we can nip that impulse in the bud, the better. Mm. Mm. I, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And and we need we need oh, we talked about missing missing someone like Christopher Hitchens, but you know, he often turns that perspective around. You know, when we're talking about Islam, he says, Well, actually the people I'm concerned about here are the Muslims, are the people. When we're talking about students at universities, the people I'm concerned about, yes, academics and speakers are being no, I'm actually concerned about the students. I'm ultimately concerned about their education and their love of knowledge and desire to um to challenge themselves and and he hey he had that a really compassionate way actually of making these points by turning them around like that and and also the the sort of pharisaical people cutting them down to size wonderful yeah. wonderful thing to be able to do that um but while we're talking about uh sort of big ticket people in the free speech world uh something that's happened this week again is is we've had uh Salman Rushdie actually his voice has entered the fray on a topic that you and I have spoken about a lot, Ben, on the topic of uh, freedom of expression, the changing of books, all sorts of different books he references. But the context was that he, uh, Salman Rushdie, uh, was making a video address at the British Book Awards on the 15th of May. And he made the point in particular with regard to um, uh, James Bond and uh, some of the things that have been said about, oh, James Bond, in the, Infle the Infleming books need to be rewritten. And he really has lashed out strongly. Uh, a couple of quotes from what he said. He said that books have come to us from their time and they are of their time. And if that's difficult to take, don't read them. Read another book, but don't try and remake yesterday's work in the light of today's attitudes. Very much, I think, that quote echoes a lot of what we've been saying, Ben. Books have come to us from their time and of their time. They speak to us. They have a message which we are not at liberty to change or to, or to temper down. And he's very strong on this. And it's always wonderful to hear a voice like Salman Rushdie's come into the fray after all that he's gone through. And I, I don't know whether you, whether you feel... Do you think an interjection from someone like Salman Rushdie will make a difference, Ben? I think it underscores the importance of what's being discussed. Given the battles that Salman Rushdie has fought in his life, given the recent horrifying attack on him, um, that he still thinks it is important to speak out about uh, the censorship of, you know, let's be honest, pretty, pretty lowbrow Ian Fleming, James Bond books, that he still thinks that is something that's worth his time to object to is commendable because I think he he has seen what many have seen and are worried by that once you start on this process of tweaking books to make them more acceptable it's very very difficult to see where that process then can stop um and yeah. I I think like all all revolutions it won't ever be something that's finished it will just go on and on and on um and so I, I think it, it it underscores actually that Salman Rushdie has has noticed this and is very is so concerned about it, given yeah. um, the magnitude of of the free speech battles that that he has been engaged in or been the victim of in his life, and the struggle that 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 he has had to survive yeah. just in the last year, um, much much less in 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 the nineties. Um, I think that undermines the argument that this is trivial. 
you know, there there has been this line of argument, I think, that, well, this is just happening to children's books. It's just happening to James Bond novels. Um, it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Um, and it's it's basically just so the publishers can sell more copies. And, it, you know, it, it's not really worth your time noticing. Um, uh, that argument became um, even less impressive once it emerged that uh, Woodhouse was being edited. Um and so I think it, I think it's a very welcome. I think it's a very welcome interview. And, and he also says your point about um, this shows it's not trivial. I think it's very well made because he also says in the same article, he says, we live in a moment, I think, this is Rushdie, we live in a moment, I think, at which freedom of expression, freedom to publish, has not in my lifetime been under such threat in the countries of the West. And again, that, that he certainly doesn't think this is trivial. He certainly, uh, as you say, says it might be. It might be, a, you know, James Bond is James Bond. It's, it's a trivial, um, fun film, book, whatever it is. But, but the changing of it, the banning of it, the censoring of it is no trivial thing. Yeah, it is a thin end of a wedge. We don't know where it stops because the people doing it never say, "Oh, we, we, well." They always say, "Don't they?" Thus far and no further. But they never, they never hold that line. They never hold that line because they then we they gain that ground and say, well, we should take the next hill, and then we should take the next hill, and then we should take the next hill. So I, I think your point about this proves it's not trivial. Someone who's done and been through what he's gone through, um, it, it really does make the point that there is a there is a crisis, there is a censorship crisis. But one thing occurred to me, Ben, is is um, you know the, the the different kinds of book bans. Um, and maybe you slightly touched on it when you when you were speaking just then. In the US, obviously, there's a lot of uproar saying, oh, you, all you people who are for freedom of speech, you're, you're removing books from libraries. Um, and and in these are the books that are quite sexualized books that children have access to. Uh, to me, that's the difference with some of that is, is you know, age-appropriate content in age-appropriate places makes sense to me. And that is a form of censorship. Of course it is. It's just saying I'm not going to give a four-year-old um, a book that's only suitable for someone who is 18 and over or whatever. And we can argue about where that line is. That, to me, is not banning a book. That, to me, is not censorship. That is curating for people who are underage and haven't yet you know, form their view of the world. Once you get past 18, once you get past 16, whatever it might be, then anything goes. And you shouldn't have access to any book. And no book should be banned. Even those overly sexualized books that might even be children's books. Put them somewhere where the adults can get them. But don't ban them. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Ben. Well, it, it's it's child safeguarding, as you said. Um, yeah. it, and I think yeah. there's an attempt to to conflate the two. I mean, if, if you're removing a book from a primary school that is, is explicitly um, sexualized, that is a completely different exercise to editing Woodhouse, for instance. Um, yeah. So I, I don't think the two are the same. I mean, I'm, there, there may well be instances where, um, in the United States, this may this may well have gone too far. Perhaps there have been cases of, of books that have been improperly removed from uh, from school libraries. Um, and there's, of course, a long tradition in America of, of battles over over what books. Um, can be uh, included in school libraries and to kill a mockingbird and so on is pro- probably the most famous example um, uh, of a book yeah. that's been fought over. Um, but this doesn't seem like like that. Um, I think it's a completely legitimate thing to to safeguard children from um, wholly inappropriate um, sexualized material is is a is a completely legitimate um, a, aim to pursue. Yeah. Um, but there is this attempt to conflate the two things. I think to to muddy the waters. Yeah, yeah. No, I think uh, I think uh, I think that's a that's that's a, a point well made. But I find it interesting that I was looking into this and, and the book bans in the US and and some of the free speech um, organisations were very worried about it. And and yeah. so yeah, it is. It's a question of of where we draw that line. Being absolutely crystal clear as to where we draw the line about where child safety safeguarding uh, ends, and where being and living in a free society with the First Amendment in the U.S.'s case, where that starts. Um, but anyway, that that was a, a minor sort of um, diversion away from this point uh, about about the books and and the big voices stepping in 
to talk about these changing of the books and censorship of the books, which I thought was quite interesting. We were just saying a moment ago before we started recording, I'd um, I just finished reading that I can't remember if it was the 10th or the 11th in the Flashman series, um, which I expect will be familiar to many listeners. But but if not, the, the um, purportedly autobiographical um, papers of a 19th century soldier and uh, unwilling adventurer. And they are very much of the time they are supposedly uh, supposed to originate from. Um, so there is an N-word, you know, every other page. He's, the, the the book that I've just finished reading is set in uh, 1859, and it's about John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry and the build-up to the American Civil War. Um, and so they're just absolutely soaked through with the, you know, racist language of um, of yeah. Dixie and the southern United States in the 1850s. And I'm absolutely horrified, terrified at the thought of, I think they're published by HarperCollins, of somebody at HarperCollins who's just finished a sociology degree somewhere, um, discovering these books by accident and realising what they're, what they're publishing. Because the, these books, you know, removing 10, 10 references from a James Bond novel, for instance, I think is objectionable but is is a relatively straightforward editing exercise, right? But the Flashman books mm. are uneditable. There is no way in which they can be <laughs> sanitized to make them acceptable to a 21st century progressive audience. There's just no way. They are what they are. Um, and so my, my my fear with the Flashman papers is that if they are ever discovered, they will just be pulped or the printing um, run will stop. And they're, they're still in print. the glasses. 2005, I think. So they're uh, very much pre-Great Awakening. I find it curious that they haven't been found. It feels to me like, um, you know, if we think of the, the the sensors that we now have, we think of them like in The Lord of the Rings, the great Lord Sauron looking to purge the land of all the books and the words and the phrases that um, we don't want. Uh, these books, like the Flashman series, a bit like Frodo and, and uh, Sam. Gamgee kind of getting into Mordor and 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 Sauron hasn't seen them. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the fear is that the radar. eye will swing around and and suddenly <laughs> they'll be they'll be found out. <laughs> and they're, honestly, they're absolutely done for if they if they're discovered yeah. by a, a twenty year old publishing intern or something. They are absolutely done for. Um, so we shall just have to hope. I think those of us who absolutely love the Flashman series um, that somebody senior in HarperCollins will have the strength of will and the nerve just to say, no, we're still publishing them. We don't, you know, we don't like the language. We don't speak like that now. Um, but the whole point is that they're, they're supposed to be authentic 19th century texts and you can't edit that. Yeah. And, and they're not, um, to, to misuse my, uh, my, uh, analogy, we don't want them thrown into Mount Doom. Uh, which yeah. completely turns my analogy the wrong way around, but <laughs> we don't <laughs> want them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, the last uh, topic that we had to talk about today was uh, something that's happened recently, over, really kicked off at the beginning of the weekend, which is uh, a, a yet another example of financial exclusion and demonetization. I mean, everyone will remember, or most listeners will remember, what happened to the Free Speech Union, where the, our PayPal account was 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 temporarily, eventually shut down. Um, this is the case of another sort of free speech platform called Trigonometry. Most people listening will know about Trigonometry. It's run by Constantin Kissin and Francis Foster, uh, a very successful kind of YouTube. You know, it is a YouTube channel and and a podcast platform, and Trigonometry is tied business bank account was shut down with absolutely no explanation and i i looked into tied they described themselves as the small business bank so they they target small customers with with you know who, who who they're not the big corporates who are able to to defend themselves very easily these will be small business businesses who have opened an account with tied and uh, rely very much on them uh, for their financial liquidity anyhow trigonometry's bank account was shut down uh, with no explanation and uh, w what Constantine Kissin said as he was shocked when uh, he'd got tried to engage with the tide they didn't want to engage or explain and just fobbed him off 
eventually when everyone went uh, when he went public and then we as a free speech union we tweeted and, and made it clear that this was this was appalling uh, other people got involved uh, Tide changed its tune and said, no, we are looking into this. We we are looking into this. But it seemed to me very odd. Trigonometry has interviewed people on all sides of the political spectrum, from Nigel Farage to Lord Andrew Adonis. Um, and other bank, again, a, a bit of positive news. Other banks have stepped in and said to Constantine uh, Kissin and Francis Foster, they've said, we will do your banking for you if you, if you can't go through this. But... Um, uh, that's no solution, as we know. That's no solution to the, to the underlying problem. It, it seems really strange to me, Ben, that after everything, the really public way in which the Free Speech Union had the PayPal incident in September last year, that now we are in May uh, 2023 with an almost identical situation. Who at Tide hasn't been looking at the news or watching it? Everything that happened through that, someone at Tide has just missed this and allowed it to happen. I, I don't know what you feel. Well, it's it's scary. It's scary enough if you're, um, you know, if you're in a position as the Free Speech Union or Trigonometry are, where you can make a fuss and you can you can make a lot of noise about this if it happens to you. Even in that situation, it's it's very frightening and unnerving that um, your bank account or, in our case, our PayPal account could just be closed. Um, in this mm. way, with no real explanation whatsoever, uh, and either no notice or very little notice. Um, I mean, fortunately for for both of us, we are able to make some fuss and some noise about it. And there was a huge backlash uh, against PayPal, uh, as there now has been against Tide. Uh, but as we see from our casework, after this happened to us, we had a we had a small flood of people coming to us saying, "Well, I've had a, a very similar situation with." Uh, a payment processor or a bank or whatever. Um, and if you're not in a position where you have a big platform and can make a lot of noise and get the decision reversed, you're really in a very, very difficult situation. We'll be glad to help you. Um, but lots of people haven't heard of the free speech union. There'll be lots of people who could be in a situation like this and might not be aware that this is a situation that others have faced or that, that there are people out there who can help you. Um, so it's very, very uh, unnerving. And, and this is something that wasn't really on my radar, you know, a year or so ago. No. Um, and it's emerged as yes. a problem that's affecting all sorts of people on the left and the right. This isn't just something where, you know, it's, it's, people, it's, it's banks closing the accounts of people on the far right, um, no. which, you know, in, in itself would be objectionable as a, as a point of principle. Um, but, but it's happening to people all over the political spectrum. And there is recourse uh, in the financial sector. There is the Financial Conduct Authority. And um, I checked and tied Business Bank is authorized by the Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, the, the trouble here is is time. So if it, what does that mean? Well, you can then go to the Financial Conduct Authority. You can look at the principles by which they regulate um Banks like Tide, and one of the one of the principles is treating customers fairly. It's a key principle, actually. Uh, principle six, and the Financial Conduct Authority Handbook says that you must treat customers fairly. And, and so, but the, the issue is um, the time it takes to go through these 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 uh, lines of recourse. You you first of all have to go through a complaint process with the with the provider. Then you can go to the FCA directly, or, or you probably would go to the ombudsman, depending on the situation and 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 what you have access to. But of course, in the meantime, your assets, your cash, all of that is is frozen potentially at worst case, or you have to find another home for it and another set of systems you have to set up. So payroll, uh, paying your suppliers, invoices, they don't stop. Bills don't stop. Yeah. And and so these lines of recourse are 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 great, but not necessarily that practical. Uh, so yeah, it, it's it's really important important that this this get highlighted and that the power, more powerful voices like ours and like um, trigonometries really stand up and make a noise about it. One additional thing I would add on this is that we ha we did write a report called "How Free Speech Friendly Are the Major Payment Processors and Crowdfunding Platforms," and that report is still very much up on our website, and we've ranked. Um, most payment provi providers and crowdfunding platforms on in that report. Unfortunately, it's not very good news, but at least it gives listeners 
uh, a place to go to see you know how widespread this issue is how how terms and conditions have very vague language and to see where we um uh rank the different the different providers so that is still out there and the other thing i would say of course is that there was uh an, a consultation on on this whole financial exclusion issue that closed in april is being considered right at the moment by the government so so with with relation to the financial services market act there was a lot of um noise made about potential amendments and sally ann hart the mp uh was tabling an amendment uh then the government said we're going to open a consultation that consultation closed in april and we'll see what comes of it so we will come back to this issue but i remain somewhat flabbergasted that tied business banks seem seem almost and I, I i don't know for sure but seem not to be aware of the noise that's been made around this issue in the last seven months or so i think the common thread that runs both through this issue of financial censorship and what we were talking about before in universities um is that if you're a if you're a bank or a payment processor or a university and you have a rush of people demanding censorship or, or a campaign on social media targeting one of your accounts or one of your students or a guest speaker or whatever, you feel, you know, if you're doing the PR for that organisation, you feel a huge pressure just to get rid of the problem. And it probably feels like the easiest thing you can do is just to close the account, cancel the event, scrap the speaker, whatever. And that, that feels like the straightforward path um, of least resistance. But... The tactic that's effective in short-circuiting that is to have a rush going in the opposite direction, the countervailing direction of people um, promising a huge backlash if you behave in the way that PayPal behaved or Tide behaved or that universities behave in um, bowing down to uh, to the wake mob. And so in both these cases, we are seeing that um, the, the organisation of that backlash, and it's hugely effective. Yeah. Yeah. And and um it's but there it is easier, isn't it, Ben, for organizations like us, for trigonometry. Yeah. It is easier when you have that social media following and but one great thing about it, and, and Constantine said said this when he was being interviewed on on GB News, he said, you know, all of friends and colleagues, friends of free sheets, free speech, so many different organizations now. Uh we link together, we work together, we coordinate and, and we yeah. create that wave. Um, and as you say, it is effective, but it, there are still a lot of powerless people out there. Um, you know, I've been away for a few days and I noticed that, uh, you know, if you're not plugged into the free speech world, if you're not thinking about it every day, things move so fast. You, you, you are not aware of, of what to do when something like this happens. You just don't know where to start. Uh, and I also notice a lot of the emails to us, Ben, start with, Oh, I wish I'd known about you sooner. Yeah. Oh, I wish I'd heard about you. I, I, I kind of stumbled on you. Um, and, and again, it's, it's great that we're all linking together, but uh, we've got to get, keep getting the message out there that we exist and we can help. Well, if you'd like to join the Free Speech Union, our membership starts at £2.49 a month and you don't have to be a member for a certain period of time before we'll uh, look at your case and, and do everything we can, everything we possibly can to help you with it and help you win it.